Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. Uh, this is going to be a special type of interview. Um, I'm going to be interviewing uh, approximately 30 scientists and researchers. Uh, the goal is to create a book on understanding viruses. So the people I interview, some of them will be virologists, some of them will be evolutionary biologists and, and other ancillary fields. I'm going to be asking them questions that they may or may not be able to answer uh, in the way that I'm hoping, but I'm going to aggregate all the answers and, and put them into this book and to give them more exposure and to give more of a voice to science. I'm also going to be publishing these uh, these edited calls as uh, interviews too, because they deserve attention for the work that they do. So today I have uh, Dennis Noble. He's I think this is the fifth time I've had him. Very well spoken guy. Uh, he's been involved in science for you know far longer than I've been alive. Um, he's a physiologist. Uh, he's also essentially an evolutionary biologist. Um, he's worked on uh, the mechanisms of the heart. You know, uh, many years ago, the the you know how the electrical components of the heart work. Um, he's He's just done, you know, he's a giant in the world of science, a very gracious person. So I have him back for um, for this. So Dennis, thanks for coming. How are you doing? I'm doing fine and very delighted to take part in what I think you're trying to do. I think it's a brilliant idea to tell people not to write. Now, that's an interesting thing. Tell academics not to write. <laughs> yeah, I love um, that. <laughs> yes. Anyway, what you're referring to, just for the audience listening, is, uh, you know, um, I, I had, when I sent out these questions for the virus book, I told people, don't write answers, please. I'd rather interview you and get them on the fly. So that's what Dennis is referring to. That's, maybe that was a bad idea. I don't know. So, all right, well, let's let's get into it. Um, and again, these are, it's okay if they're impossible questions, but I want to get your take. So first one I had is, um, do all forms of life that you know of, you know, prokaryotes, eukaryotes, et cetera, have viruses? and what are a few examples of organisms that surprise you that have viruses? And what's the mechanism that they, they act? Right. Well, first of all, I, I don't know whether viruses have viruses. I'll leave that to people who are much more expert on virology to answer. But I don't know of any other organism not even sure whether viruses should be described as organisms, but that may be something you'll come to later. I'm not sure that there's any organism that does not have viruses that are capable of either attacking it or helping it or in some way or another interacting with it. The example that has always fascinated me is a study in the little worm, C. elegans, done by Rehavi and his colleagues a number of years ago. And what they did was to work on an organism that is attacked by essentially only one particular virus. And that's the worm C. elegans. And what C. elegans has done in reacting to this is to at least some of them 
have developed um, a bit of DNA that forms an RNA, which is after all what DNAs normally do, but which is capable of silencing that particular virus. It is, if you like, the little nematode worm's way of having an immunity to viruses. Now, the interesting thing is that some viruses have that in natural um, populations and some do not. What Reichavi and his colleagues did was a very interesting experiment. They infected a particular group of worms that were capable of producing the RNA silencer for that virus that attacks um, the C. elegans. And they then found, not surprisingly, that they were capable of silencing it. So it was no longer uh, active. So what they then did was to breed those worms with other worms that do not have the DNA that can form the RNA silencer. That's very important because what they then did was to get typical Mendelian experiment. You get a number of offspring, some of which, well, initially all will have the DNA that can um, produce the silencing response. But by the second generation, you'll have some worms that do not have the DNA to produce that RNA silencer. The interesting observation is that absolutely all the worms, including those that don't have the DNA for that RNA, had got the immune response. They were all capable of silencing the um, virus. Now, what was going on was what they then went on to show, which is it's a beautiful example of the inheritance of an acquired characteristic. What happens is that each generation is formed from such a fusion, such a pairing between worms that have the DNA and worms that don't, will acquire some of those RNAs from the parents. That's necessarily the case because that's the way the system works. Some of those RNAs will go down the generation. They now, the next stage of the uh, fascinating story is that the worms have an, an RNA polymerase. That's an enzyme that multiplies up the amount of that RNA. You can now begin to see where this is going. The worms that in the subsequent generations don't have the DNA are simply inheriting the RNA. And then so, they're, they they're, they're directly, so they're directly inheriting. So this, this, this is just say that heritability does not come solely from DNA, but they're directly inheriting this RNA? Exactly so, Rich. It's one of the best experiments because of that, because it was followed for a hundred generations and it's maintained over the whole hundred generations. That's probably the most interesting example that I have of an unusual form, both of inheritance and of dealing with a viral infection. I'm fascinated too by the fact that these worms seem to have only one virus that can get into them. I don't know why that is the case. There might be... Yeah, I've heard with with bacteria and, you know, obviously with people um, that bacteria alone will have dozens or hundreds of different phages that can affect them. So it is unusual for, you know, a macroscopic organism or a worm to only have one 
one virus that affects it. Huh. Right. Well, that wow. that's interesting. Yeah. Just this one example is a whole long conversation in itself. Well, we'll have to, sheesh, we'll have to get back to it. I don't want to get okay. too far off track, but yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, uh, next question, are viruses alive or not? When I think of a seed, you know, no one would say the seed's not alive. It leads to, you know, an obviously living creature, let's say the seed of a, I don't yeah. know, a pumpkin, a pumpkin, but, but while it's in the seed stage, if I look at it as not moving and if I really drill down to maybe a molecular level, maybe there's not much happening, but yet it's, it's alive. I don't know if it's alive at that point, you know? And so when I think of viruses, uh, maybe, maybe we're looking at them in the wrong way. Maybe that we think because they seem to spend most of their time in the virient stage, which doesn't appear to be alive and only a small amount of time inside of a cell, you know, doing things that, that we mistake them for not being alive when they should be. I don't know, but I wanted to know your thoughts on, even though the definition's elusive, do you think that they have enough hallmarks to make them living things? Yeah, I think the difference there is this. The seed, even though it is dormant, has all the information necessary to form the replicating machinery when it proceeds to produce the new plant or the new organism. The virus doesn't. That's the difference. Now, whether one wants to make that a definition of what is or is not alive, of course, is a, an important but somewhat philosophical question. I don't mean that in a derogatory way. I have a big respect for philosophy, particularly in dealing with logical arguments. But it does seem to me that the seed is quite unlike a virus in its dormant state, in that, as I've just said, it has precisely all the components necessary when it germinates to enable it to replicate. And the virus doesn't have that. Now, on the other hand, of course, the virus in its state of not being in a cell has a very interesting property. I mean, that's why, of course, some people have wondered whether viral forms of, what shall we call it, bits of living system anyway, um, could conceivably have even transferred from one planet to another. That's, of course, the, the extraterrestrial hypothesis for some of the DNA that we now have. And I think we will sometime in the near future, as we explore the solar system, we will begin to answer that question. Is it possible that that was the case? What will we find when we um, eventually find, as I suspect we will, forms of life or viral forms on Mars or indeed on other other solar um, uh, parts, other parts of the solar system. So I think we're going at some stage to be able to answer that kind of question. But to deal directly with your main question, I would say that if you cannot replicate yourself, you are not alive. I would regard the ability to replicate oneself as a very necessary feature of being alive. Okay, very good. Um, so this next one is, you know, it's kind of in two parts. So if you assume that viruses have, they're, they're alive enough to have certain traits like, you know, homeostatic drive, recognition of self versus other, you know, ability to evaluate information, biological information and act on it, 
why why do you think that some viruses multiply inside you know a host cells and burst out and kill the host and and others will stay there for months years or forever you know why is there lytic versus lysogenic behavior in bacteria and why in in people is there latent versus you know active infecting behavior of viruses what governs that you think yes what i'm attempt to do here is to give a, an evolutionary biology answer to that clearly let's take extreme cases if all viruses killed their hosts there would be no viruses left because there'd be no hosts so um one way of answering that question is to say that for viruses as a type to have survived at all it is absolutely necessary that at least some of them do not kill their hosts now then of course you can move on to a typical evolutionary biologist selectionist um, argument which is to say that those viruses that do um, very virulently kill their hosts will rapidly die out um, for obvious reasons. There will be no hosts left for them to be uh, invading. Now, of course, that may occur only, let's say, in a particular part of the ecosphere. Uh, obviously, if it occurred everywhere, it would wipe out life completely. But what seems to me to be a reasonable evolutionary argument to why there are many viruses that, are, can, that can be dormant or even in some way or another even contribute to uh, the host um, is that that's their only way in the end of being able to survive at all. So I think there's a kind of balance here. I'm sure some evolutionary biologists, not me, but some must have tried to do the appropriate um, population genetic calculations on this to what extent can a virus be virulent and, and to what extent has it to be uh, relatively harmless in order to survive at all. My guess is that the um, mathematicians doing that kind of work must have worked out what the rel relative proportions would be. But it's fairly obvious to me that any virus that is completely virulent and really does act like a, a plague in, um, in ensuring that the vast majority of its hosts are killed, that won't survive very long. Well, I mean, from an evolutionary perspective, what's driving either endogenization oh, yes. of a virus or yes. just latent behavior, commensal behavior? If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Yes. I wouldn't, that's an interesting one, Rich, because I wouldn't actually give any kind of intentionality to a virus. Now, um, this is a somewhat philosophical point, but it's also got important scientific consequences. I think that something that is purely passive until it can replicate inside another organism um, Yes, you can by metaphor attribute to it a kind of intentionality, but I think we've always got to remember that that is only a metaphor. It isn't the reality in the sense in which we can say that you and I have intentional behavior. So that's my first point. I think 
viruses certainly are in the category in which I think that attributing that kind of intentionality to them is only a metaphor. But I think that's true of DNA generally, which of course is my major um, objection to Richard Dawkins' work in The Selfish Gene. A gene can't be selfish, but he would admit that now. Um, the DNA itself uh, cannot be regarded as literally selfish. What he's doing there, and I think you can do the same thing with viruses too, he's saying in effect, it is as though they have this kind of directionality, this kind of intention. And that's fine, provided we always remember that it is effectively a metaphor. It cannot be a literal statement. Yeah, if they do have a, again, I'm anthropomorphizing, but if they have a goal, does it appear that, that all viruses have a goal to become, again, less you know, virulent enough to be successful in infecting, but then commensal? I would put it the other way around. I think I would say that those viruses that happen to have, um, as it were, cooperative uh, and non-virulent characteristics will survive much better than those that are virulent and kill. And so I think you can leave that to natural selection to deal with. It can That will ensure that in the end, the viruses that will survive will be those that have that kind of property. Whether one then ascribes that property to the virus or to the process, which is in this case natural selection, that leads to some viruses surviving and others not, I think that becomes an essentially philosophical question. Continuing along this line, um, I know that bacteria have, you know, again, what's called quorum sensing. So when, when someone's infected by a virus, it seems like there's a latency period. Sometimes it, a few days, sometimes, you know, longer. Why is there a latency period? Do you think it's that th there might be a quorum sensing going on? The virus is using the cells as a proxy to communicate with each other. I mean, again, why would there be a latency period? What do you think? Yes, I, I'm going to make a guess here because I, I don't really know enough to be sure. But my guess is this. Let's ask the question, what do we mean by a latency period? We don't mean that the virus is not there because clearly it is. <laughs> so it isn't that it takes time for a virus to get in. It gets in and that's it. Um, so what is actually going on there? If it just reproduces and only does that, then it's not going to do any damage. So the question is, what is it that is happening during the period that leads up to the pathology? And what is the pathology? Well, in relation to that, I think COVID is a pretty good example because the real problem uh, with COVID is it's provoking the immune system into some very extraordinary behavior that leads to the immune system literally causing great problems for the host. So it's the host's own immune system going into overdrive, largely, of course, because it will have failed to find a good way of dealing with the virus infection. So 
the pathology is not so much possessing the virus, the virus being there and reproducing, it is a physiological or pathological question, which is how long does it take for a pathological response of the organism itself to the virus to be a big health problem and potentially fatal. And I think COVID shows that extremely well. Um, the great majority of those who are infected by COVID survive pretty well. Uh, they may have a, a, a short period of difficulty, a bit like a flu, uh, but um, unless the system responds with a major uh, inflammatory response, which is the major problem with the respiratory tract, unless that happens, uh, people will have only a fairly mild response to the virus. So I think the, the latent period is more a question for, a phys for the physiology and pathology of the reaction of the organism rather than an intrinsic factor to the virus itself. Yeah, that's a very interesting way of answering. Okay. Um, so kind of along this line, it seems to me that the the mechanism of infection or the, the cell type that gets infected then becomes a mechanism for the virus to spread. So rabies. Yeah. Why would rabies seem to encourage the, uh, you know, the creature infected to go crazy and want to bite other creatures and thereby spread itself while flu may cause the person to cough and sneeze and all that. And then it's spread more by respiratory droplets. Like it seems there's a matching going on. And I don't know why that the mechanism of spread also correlates to the, the cell types that are infected by a given virus. Maybe I'm wrong. Yes, that, that, that's absolutely right. I suppose on this, I would give a, a standard evolutionary biolog biological response to that, which is that simply by natural selection, if nothing else, you will end up with um, the development of methods for spreading, uh, just as plants have developed flowers and the mechanisms for interesting insects in those flowers. Uh, and you could say that what they're doing is developing a mechanism for spreading themselves. Now, of course, there are very big questions about the evolution of such advantageous methods of spread. Are they entirely natural selection? Or is there some sense in which the evolutionary process itself can be said to have had, to some degree, a goal to produce that. And that's a very difficult and very, um, how should I put this? Um, well, certainly a very live question in evolutionary biology, the extent to which the evolutionary process is entirely blind <clears throat> in the sense that there is no goal. It's just that natural selection which itself is blind, um, inevitably produces the success of those that have the characteristic of being able to spread themselves? Or is there, on the other hand, some degree of um, pre-empting future change in what is going on? Those are live questions in evolutionary biology, and they're not, they're open questions at the moment. I don't think at the moment we have an answer. But for the time being, I think one could say that there's 
no absolute need to suppose anything other than a natural selection process here. But others may well disagree with me, and I'd be very interested to know whether others have good evidence for a, a kind of quorum type activity, a kind of group activity. But I don't know of that evidence myself. Okay. And then um, I've heard examples of bacteria co-opting, you know, uh, essentially like the spike protein assembly of, of a virus and using it to penetrate other bacteria and, you know, blow them open. I've, I, when I look at extracellular vesicles, they seem like viral, like, you know, they'll contain genetic material. They'll, they'll be put out by a cell. They'll go into other cells. They'll change their, their, uh, you know, their, their gene regulation, et cetera. Um, even, you know, a sperm and egg meeting seems somewhat like a viral process and, and I know, like at least between bacteria and viruses, there's a, a back and forth uh, passing of of genetic material and abilities. Um, what do you think drives this? How could that happen? How could life have access to this playbook of, for instance, viral ability, and how could it show up in different organisms and and go back and forth? Yes, I like this question a lot. Um, I've been struggling myself with the following question. What exactly is the difference between a virus and an exosome? Now, obviously, there are some differences, and, and, and technically, others would be able to answer that better than me. But I've got a, a different kind of line here. How did viruses arise? They can't have been there on their own, because we come back to the problem, which is that they can't replicate outside um, a living cell. So what are they? I wonder whether they are descended from what cells pour out naturally. Um, you would only have to imagine that in addition to a vesicle, an exosome, um, containing bits of DNA or RNA or both, and possibly other molecules as well, and most of them of course do, You'd only have to imagine that um, some of those, again, by natural selection, get the property of being able to attach themselves to other cells. Well, actually, we know that some of the extracellular vesicles do that anyway. They've got the sticky proteins that enable them to latch on to other cells or indeed to form a pathway um, in their movement uh, through the organism. So I, I'd like to put a, a somewhat outrageous question to um, others in your set of authors who might know the answer better than me. Could it be that viruses are a form of extracellular vesicle that have simply managed to survive in the sense that they do, that is, the ability to replicate inside another cell um, outside the organism itself. I don't think we know the answer to that kind of question because we obviously all the issues to do with the origin of life are still very much up in the air. So I, I seriously wonder whether the extracellular vesicle story can give us some clues as to the origin of viruses but I can't go further than that because I don't have enough knowledge. Yeah, that's really interesting. I love that that turnaround because then I could contemplate, you know, an extracellular vesicle as right 
a bad actor that turns into a virus or a bad actor that actually could maybe cause cancer. You know, it, I wonder if there are mechanisms by which uh, cancer can happen or a cell can turn cancerous. So, hmm. Well, there is, of course, a big interest in how extracellular vesicles can facilitate metastasis, and uh, that's a very important area. So I think think these are very interesting questions. I would be fascinated if you're able to put that kind of issue to some of your um, contributors who would be in a much better position than me to... um, expound on the plausibility of this idea. Okay. Yeah, I will. Definitely. All right. So moving on. Uh, all right. So then w- when I look at, at viruses, um, I've, they have like very different shapes. I mean, there's tremendous variations. Some are rods, some are spheres. Indeed, with yes. spike. You know, some some look like uh, moon landers. You know, they, they have a head and a tail and, and all this crazy machinery. Um, yes. it, I don't know. Is there... Why such variation or that that question could be answered by saying why such variation in animal forms or plant forms? Well, there is, of course. You see, I'm fascinated as a physiologist by the fact that, well, we classify the cell types in our body into at least 200 different uh, cell types. You know, they're, they're, they're as different as a bone cell that is secreting calcium to form hard bone. Um, a nerve cell that sends out great long filaments that can go the length of an organism and transmit a signal from one end of the organism uh, to another, to um, liver cells that can perform all kinds of metabolism that are special to the liver cell. Same is true, of course, of the pancreas. Well, you can go through them, and you see, and there's around, as I said, around 200 cell types that, as a physiologist, you um, have to consider. And the interesting thing is they all come from exactly the same genome. Mm. After all, you see, that's what we all inherit, the genome from our parents. That's all we get in the fused uh, sperm and egg. And so simply by a process of differentiation, you can produce an absolutely phenomenal um, uh, range of outcomes from exactly the same DNA. So I'd invert your question. It would be surprising if viruses did not found the way of doing that. Um, I mean, it seems to me that that, that organisms do it so much already, um, and particularly, of course, the the big um, multicellular organisms like you, me, and many of the animals and plants that we know, and they've obviously got that ability to interpret a genome in very many different ways. So this isn't a full answer to your question because there's still the question of how then do viruses manage to, well, now here's an interesting question. They must also use their hosts to change. Have you thought of that? You see, if you can't replicate outside a host, how does a SARS become a COVID or coronavirus? Mm-hmm. And that must be that it was replication and variation in that replication inside hosts that led to there being a change in the virus. That's the only way in which a virus can change. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Well. Um, moving on to the next question, 
And I know each of these topics we could spend a long time on, but you know, we have to move on. Um, if, if you imagine a virus going through a whole sequence of events, that's, you know, it comes in contact with a cell, it fuses, it, it enters, it deploys its payload, et cetera. If I was to set up a, um, you know, like a, a, an empty cell, you know, a lipid bilayer and, uh, there was nothing inside, no one home. Do you, do you think that a virus would fuse to it and then deploy its payload into it? Or do you think it would sense that there's nothing in there and stop at a certain point? Oh, I think cell membranes are absolutely peppered with stuff. In addition to the lipid membrane, <laughs> the, the, the simple vesicle of just lipid would be of no interest to a virus at all. I think what they are capable of doing is rather like the lock and key approach in immunology. How does an antibody uh, manage to lock on to uh, the antigen, the virus or the bacteria that is infecting the organism? It's through developing an immunoglobulin that has exactly the right shape, that's the lock and key analogy, to lock on to um, the invading organism. I think viruses have got all these complex forms because they've got, as do the immunoglobulins, many different shapes that can recognize the kind of host that they can attack. And so I think that if they met a simple vesicle formed by lipid bilayer and nothing else, they would uh, not do anything. And, I mean, right. <laughs> so... I, th th that's a simple answer to the question, but I'm not quite sure whether it fully answers what you're getting at. Well, what, what if I got better at it now and I was able to take a, a cell and suck out all the contents, but I got the membrane 100% right, all the right receptors and everything. Now do you think, and boy, would it stop at some point and say, something's wrong here, we're not getting the signal we need and not deploy? That's very clever. In other words, you've got everything except you sucked out the nucleus let's say yeah so there's no dna there there's no machinery for replicating i think the poor thing would be nonplussed it would get in because it would recognize some of the stuff on the surface membrane that is relevant and so it would get in and then find itself wandering around in a random way and never finding the replicatory machinery sure. i think it'd be quite a joke <laughs> okay. Well, maybe this could be um, a therapy of making these things if you could in mass and using them as decoys inside of a live oh, creature. Oh, have them as decoys. Wow. Yes. Yep. Okay. So you have cells without nuclei acting as decoys for the viruses that mistake them. I like the idea, but I'm not sure whether it would work. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Um. I, I read a paper recently, and I, I don't have the exact name of it, I'm sorry, but in the paper, they, they noted that um, this one particular virus created, I mean, just, you know, it replicated inside cells, it, it created tons of virions, but a large part, a percentage of them were empty. And I wonder um, if this was, it could be a strategy whereby the virus uh, uses the empty virions as camouflage. See, now we're turning it around to, uh, to hide the, you know, the, the fully functional virions from the immune system. Any any thoughts on such a thing? Oh, I see. To confuse the immune system. Yeah. Do you think yeah, that could be a strategy? Why would that happen? Do you think it's just errors and, you know, they didn't, 
they didn't arm the variants, you know, the capsids are empty right. because of mistakes right. or because it's deliberate. Yes. Well, it's a fascinating idea, but I've no comment on that. I don't know whether it happens. <laughs> I mean, okay. but what you're, you're saying is that there can be enough variants that some could be, as it were, decoys to mop up the immune system response, leaving the real virulent ones to get on with the job of what they're doing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I just wondered. So, okay. Now, can't answer whether that would work or not. <laughs> yes. Mm. A very nice idea. Um, do you think, uh, you know, bacteria can form biofilms and again, do quorum Indeed. sensing, et cetera. Do you, do you think that viruses exhibit any group identity or group behavior? Well, that also would be an interesting question, but why would they do it? Because they can't do anything as the, let's say they form a mat or a film or whatever, um, they can't reproduce. So they would just be, as it were, coming together for, for what purpose? Uh, I can see how um, a bacterial mat can do something very interesting as a group, as a film, because mm -hmm. they can communicate to each other on what kind of nutrients are available, how quickly to reproduce, and there's good evidence for that, that waves of um, activity can pass uh, through bacterial films to, as it were, tell the peripheral group when the central group is in trouble and can't yet reproduce. And the message would be, wait a bit until we get a bit more nutrient to be able to reproduce. And so I can see how a reproducing film or um, mat of bacteria can do it, but I can't see what the viruses would be able to do that would be the equivalent, precisely because they can't reproduce themselves. Yeah, the only way is if they were using, you know, once they entered into cells, if they were using them as a proxy to communicate with each other and to coordinate action. But it'd have to be, that's right. They'd have to be, yes, in a sense, communicating through their ability to invade a cell. Um, now, how many viruses can invade a cell at the same time? I don't know the answer to that kind of question. I think this, again, is a, a question for the real virologists. Mm. Well, it, let's say it's just one virus, one cell. Um, you know, given the fact that viruses seem to, you know, have evolved to evade our immune system by, you know, by changing the, the nature of, let's say, the cell membrane, um, do you think that it is possible that viruses could coordinate, even if it was one per cell, amongst a group of cells and coordinate action and use the cell's machinery to communicate, direct specific EVs to be sent out or you know, communicate in other ways? Oh, that's a lovely question. Um, what happens when a cell is invaded by a virus and do they then start pouring out EVs? What we do know is that it's only when cells, now I'll try and put this point a little bit more carefully, cells are not necessarily pouring EVs out all the time. Um, so there are certain stimuli that will enable them and provoke them to do that. So yes, it's quite 
An interesting question, could the invasion of a virus itself be a way of provoking the cell to communicate? And would that communication count as telling the other cells, hey, I've got a virus? I don't know. I mean, that's a, that's a fascinating question. You know, there are so many things that we don't know about EVs at the moment. As you know, I've, I've been uh, absolutely fascinated myself by the fact that they can go across the Weissman barrier, they can go from the soma to the germline and mm -hmm. communicate all kinds of information. But what that information is doing, I think, is still um, very much an open area of research. And what you've just suggested, that is that cells could be communicating the information that they have particular viruses in them, um, in what goes out in the EVs. Well, why not? I mean, after all, the EV could be, I mean, why can't it contain the virus? I don't yeah. know. I don't know whether that's ever been shown, but it would hmm. be fascinating if it's true. Okay. okay. You get, what, maybe 10,000 viruses out of the um, replication machinery of a cell. Won't some of those get taken up into certainly the larger EVs? As you know, there's a huge range of size right. of extracellular vesicles. And it seems to me the larger ones could certainly contain a virus. Yeah, yeah. Very fascinating. You're very good at raising some fascinating questions, Rich. <laughs> I get more from these than you may do. No, that's 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 my goal. I'm a, yeah, I see it is. Right? I, more, more power to you. My my wife says I'm an endless source of of endless questions. So yeah, that's what I'm, well, that's, I'm focusing on my ability. Good thing to be. Yes. <laughs> so once a cell is infected by a virus, you know the virus may change the uh, the antigens that are present on the cell membrane. You know, again, it, maybe it affects EVs. Who knows? Do, do you think that the microbiome would quickly change uh, around a particular cell once it's infected by a virus? Wow. Um, now the micro biome is generally outside the organism's set of cells. So yeah, the, the reason I ask is um, I interviewed a lady named Florencia McAllister, and they looked at like uh, pancreas tumors and cancer, yeah. and they had a different microbiome versus, you know, the, the normal pancreatic cells. So I figured that maybe when a virus infects a cell pretty quickly after that, the cell is not going to put out metabolites that maybe local bacteria would like to eat and then the bacteria that are around it say hmm you know our environment's changed our dinner is not coming and you know and perhaps that would that would select for different uh bacteria that are immediately adjacent and around a given cell right i'm puzzled here because i can't see why the bacteria would actually be inside the pancreas i can see that they can be in the intestinal system on the integuments on the surface of the body on the uh, respiratory pathways uh, and tubes, uh, but I can't see how they can be actually inside um, an organ. Um, so let's say an, an epithelial, you know, cell in our gut uh, gets infected by a virus. Yes. Um, would the would the local microbes that are immediately adjacent to it that interact with it? Do you think that those would change? Could you would you see a noticeable change in the the very local microenvironment microbiome around that cell. Goodness, I, I can't even guess. Um, would what would the 
microbes in the microbiome be sensing, of course, <laughs> the extracellular vesicles. <laughs> so yeah, you're, you're raising very good questions all the time, Rich. Yes, so could those epithelial cells be excreting um, extracellular vesicles that contain the information to the microbiome? Please do something about this to help. Mm. Well, I can't see completely why not. I mean, now that we know that the um, extracellular vesicles are not just rubbish, not just detritus uh, that the cells put out because they've got rubbish to put out, but have very clear functional um, existence, um, no, it's not impossible. I think the idea you've got, particularly with regard to the surface cells, the epithelial cells, yes, they could be pouring extracellular vesicles out that could communicate to the microbiome what is going on. What the microbiome would then be able to do about it, I don't know. You've got a fascinating question there, yeah. Okay, yeah, that's probably a real tough one. So, all right, just a few more. Um, so, I've, I've thought about this, so like, you know, virions supposedly are completely non-motile, they're passive. And they're so tiny, you know, they're 50 to 100 nanometers, let's say. Yeah. In relation to a host like myself, there's such a vast, I mean, there's orders and orders and orders of magnitude difference in size and expanse. How is it that, you know, throughout time, there's been, I don't know, 10 to the 30 successful viral infections of various hosts? How do they, how do they find their target? It's like a speck of dust in the, you know, against the expanse of the universe. How do they find their targets, you think, given that, again, they're, they're non-motile, they're passive for the most part, and there's such a size difference. Yes. Well, of course, with regard to the current pandemic, we, we know, of course, they're entirely reliant on essentially surface contact and um, droplets that can carry them through the air. But then I think of, well, how do trees, you know, send their seeds out all over the place? Um, <laughs> They might sell out, send out a trillion seeds, and only one produces another tree. I think it, 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 the standard answer from biologists would be that just so damn many of them that some will succeed. But if there's the, the question here is whether there's any kind of guiding that could exist. How would they, in some sense, obviously not know in a real sense, it'd have to be metaphorical, is there some way in which they could, as it were, know that there's a juicy organism over there um, to go to? I, I'm inclined myself to think that it's just that trillions are produced and the odd one or two get through. Once they do, of course, the replication mechanism produces millions and trillions very quickly. Mm. Okay, so maybe it's just gross numbers, but we don't know. Okay. I, I would guess it may just be the law of big numbers. Uh, enough of them, you'll get through. That's right. Okay. And last few questions. Which, which do you think came first, viruses or cellular life forms? No way viruses can be first. <laughs> they can't replicate, so they okay. need a cell to replicate. Now, having said that, um, now we come to the question of what is a virus? Because you see, it comes back to this question that I raised myself. Could extracellular vesicles have themselves become 
viruses. Well, of course, they'd have to be cells to produce the extracellular vesicles. So that doesn't answer um, by itself the question, what came first? No, I think I'll stick with my first answer. I can't see how anything that cannot self-replicate could have come first. It seems to me, therefore, that the first successful forms of life, though how many properties of life it would have had is an interesting question, would have to have had some way of enclosing a metabolic pathway, in other words, a network of interactions <coughs> between various chemicals sufficiently restrained could therefore be a crack in a rock or whatever people might uh, produce as a, a form of constraint to ensure that once the reaction gets going, it doesn't immediately sort of disperse in um, the primeval soup or primeval sea in which it finds itself. Um, certainly, whether cell membranes were there in the first such processes, self-reproducing um, uh, metabolic pathways or networks of interactions, I think that's a very good question. Somebody who's trying to um, answer that question is the person, just trying to remember his name for a moment, uh, Lee Cronin at Glasgow University has some fascinating work um, He's looking at the way in which um, iterative modification of polypeptides, the precursors of proteins, could have developed into a self-maintaining system. If you want to look up Lee Cronin, L-E-E-C-R-O-N-I-N at Glasgow, you'll see what I mean. I, I'm inclined to think that that's the better way to look for the origin of life than to imagine that life started with viruses. Mm. Okay, very good. Um, what role do viruses play in the evolutionary adaptation and speciation? And what do you, how do you think they play a role? I think it's a, I think it's a very big role indeed. Um, the days when we often thought that great chunks of the genome were junk have gone. Um, we're inclined now to think that most of the genome is functional and a very large fraction of our genomes is viral in origin. My interpretation of that, but I'm following others, of course, who have worked on this much more than me, my interpretation of that is that must have been functional. It must have given us many opportunities in evolution that wouldn't have existed without that. That's the sense in which I go along with those who say that the incorporation of viral DNA has been a very major factor in evolution. Mm. Yeah, from what I've heard, it's like anywhere from 8 to 10% of our uh, DNA okay. is from viruses, which is amazing. Indeed, yeah. Okay. When you think that only 2 or 3% is used to make proteins, that's a very big fraction. That's true. That's very yes. true. Well, very good. That's um, yeah. That that's that's essentially that's all my questions. Um, you know, I appreciate you participating in this project, and I'm glad I was able to 
you know, so she asked you some good questions. You know. um, what, what's the best way for people to follow up on your initiatives and your work and the stuff that you're doing right now? Okay. Well, um, first of all, I, um, I publish quite frequently. <laughs> so I could send you just a few links to um, articles that, come, that have come out in, say, the last year, if that would help. Um, sure. Yeah, you know, you're can, highlighted, and your work is uh, is highlighted. People could follow yes, up. Yes, I can. I can send that material. Um, then the other thing I'm doing is I'm. Uh, this won't, of course, be relevant to precisely to this particular question. I, I've decided to write a short evolutionary autobiography, which is what oh. I've done. It's not yet published, and I have no idea when it will be. Um, but it's been great fun. I've enjoyed doing that. Um, so sometime, maybe in a year or so's time, there will be The Evolution of Dennis Noble, which will be my next book. Well, that's cool. You're going to have some baby photographs and photographs oh, yes, of yourself. Be, oh, yes. There'll be all the stories about birth and all the rest of it. Yes. <laughs> but the theme will not be what was my life. It will be the theme, what led me to go from... Uh, a little um, schoolboy learning about evolutionary biology from my biology master at the age of about 14 or 15 um, oh. through to where I am now. So it, it is a focused autobiography. But there's a, a heads up for what might appear sometime in the next year or so. That's great. But okay. I will send you a few uh, um, articles that have come out just recently. Okay, yeah, that's great, Dennis. I really appreciate it. Okay, very good. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.